what day it is, <laughs> what month. Let's open the meeting with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, wisdom to know the difference. Preamble tells us what A is all about. It says Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other. They may solve their common problem and help others recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for A membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. And I have a volunteer here to read how it works for us this morning. I'm Paul Alcoholic. How it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with them. There are such un unfortunates. They're, they are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do not, but, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these we balked. We thought we could find an, an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember, we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. The one is God. May you find him now. Half, measure, half measures avail us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a, a program of recovery. One, <clears throat> we admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we were entirely were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to, all, to them all. Nine, <clears throat> made direct amends to such people wherever possible 
except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry his message, this message to alcoholics to practice these principles in our affairs. Many of us proclaimed, what an order. I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our discipline of our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. C, that God and that God could and would if he were sought. Once a week I go by a detox center and share a little with them and I tell them if they want to know how it works, there, there's a chapter in there named that. And there's two and a half, three, three page, three and a half pages. I'll tell them everything they need to know. The only place you find the steps tells you what happens if you do it and what happens if you don't do it. And we give them a book, a little mini edition, so they all have a book, and they can't say they don't know how it works. Some of them do, and some of them don't. So, Anyway, welcome to our early bird meeting. Uh, at 8.15, we'll start the speakers again this, for this morning. And so this, this morning at the early bird meeting, we have our, uh, our, our chairman is uh, Dick P. And turn it over. morning. My name is Dick. I'm an alcoholic. I want to tell you all how happy I am to be here. I am nervous, but I am happy. When I had the opportunity of talking to Hal at the airport last year about this meeting, and he told me the topic was going to be a spiritual odyssey, I immediately told him I wanted to be a part of it. And I was absolutely delighted when I got the notice that I could do this. If there was a topic that I could have picked, it would have been this one. And he gave it to me, having had a spiritual awakening. I just cannot truly, truly express the gratitude and the joy I have for being a sober alcoholic. And I will go to any lengths to give you my very best about what's happened to me and where my life has gone in recovery. But before I do that, I need to thank a few people. The first person in my life that I want to thank is Karen. I love you. You never gave up and you've given me inspiration through all this. The other person that I need to thank is my present sponsor, Frank. 
Frank taught me 14 years ago the importance of going to meetings and of carrying the message and of being there for the newcomer. The other two people that I express gratitude to Father Joseph Martin, who has been an inspiration to me, and I've listened to his tapes and taken his advice and have hopefully grown from that advice. The other person I would like to thank is my second sponsor, Father Joseph Hunt, who died eight years ago. From him, I have been given the gift of life. He was the most inspiring, dedicated individual that I have ever met. He loved me far beyond anything that I thought was possible, and he nurtured me back to health. And the last thing I would like to say is I want to thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. You people saved my life. And I will do whatever is possible in the remainder of my life to give back to you what you've given to me. I'd like to start this talk with a few quotations that are important to me. Don't be afraid of any principle because it comes from a source you aren't willing to believe in. It may be true. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Confucius made a statement that said that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Buddha said it just slightly differently. He says that the spiritual, spiritual teacher can only point the way. We have to do our own traveling. Emmett Fox stated, no man can save his brother's soul. There's a Christian hymn that says we have to walk this lonesome valley. We have to walk it by ourselves, that nobody else can walk it for us. I want to take the opportunity this morning to try to share to you in the most intimate and in the most sincere way I possibly can where I came from in this program and where I hope to go. A component of serenity that I think is probably the describing serenity to me the most completely and the most accurate is the thought that when you feel in your heart and what you think in your head is in a straight line and it's capable of coming out of your mouth, I have found that serenity. I'm not afraid of my feelings anymore and I'm not afraid of my thoughts and I'm not afraid of sharing them. No greater love hath any man than to lay down his life for his friends. I think that's what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. The sincere, complete sharing of our thoughts and our feelings and our desires and our hopes lead to a life for me that has been absolutely gorgeous. Beyond my wildest dream, I'm living in a life today that I always wanted to have. And it's been possible through the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. If there is one thing, one area that I can talk about, it's this book, The Taproot of My Sobriety, the thing that I drive deeper and deeper into the ground of my recovery each day. Not that I read it every day, but I try to practice the principles that it taught me to use every day. 
and I use it as a reference source when I'm in trouble, when I doubt. Page 449, I use consistently acceptance. Spirituality sometimes I think is very frightening to people because there is no right or wrong answer. If it's your spirituality, it's your spirituality. I have talked a number of times about spirituality and I always get a little confused when I try to explain this because I believe that there is just one God and you can express him in any way that you want to. You know, there's a concept of a, a Buddha God, a Christ God, a Native American God, a natural God, whatever it wants to be, it's all the same thing. It's our individual thought process that creates the difference and therefore we want to be unique and different and saying that I'm the right and you're the wrong or you don't understand. And ultimately I think we all understand. As I was preparing this talk starting back in May, I started keeping a list of all the readings that I do and each one of those readings that really stuck out as having a significance to what I wanted to say. Well, I had to quit counting because I ran into trouble. I had way too much information, not enough time to give it. So I boiled it down to a couple real simple things. And it's interestingly enough, the simple things came from here. A couple readings I'd like to use. This is May 23rd from Daily Reflections. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. It is very difficult for me to come to terms with my spiritual illness because of my great pride disguised by my material success and my intellectual power. Intelligence is not incompatible with humility, provided I place humility first. To seek prestige and wealth is the ultimate goal for many in the modern world. To be fashionable and to seem better than we really are is a spiritual illness. To recognize and to admit our weakness is the beginning of good spiritual health. It is a sign of spiritual health to be able to ask God each day to enlighten me, to recognize his will, and to have the strength to execute it. My spiritual health is excellent when I realize that the better I get, the more I discover how much help I need from others. And on August 1st, living it. The spiritual life is not a theory. You have to live it. When new in the program, I couldn't comprehend living the spiritual aspects of the program. But now that I am sober, I can't comprehend living without it. Spirituality was what I had been, been seeking. God, as I understood him, has given me answers to the whys that kept me drinking for 20 years. By living a spiritual life, by asking God for help, I have learned to love, care for, and feel compassion for all my fellow men, and to feel the joy in the world where before I felt only pain. The spiritual journey that I went on started a long, long time ago. At the age of four and a half, I remember my uncle dying, and somehow I felt it was my fault. Somewhere around the age of eight or nine, my mother told me I was a mistake, and I felt useless. And at about the same time, it became obvious to me that I didn't learn like other kids. I wasn't quite as smart 
I didn't quite measure up. So the early part of my childhood and the most of my adulthood was a spirituality of inferiority that God made me, but he didn't approve of me. Somebody yesterday made the mistake that he was the first mistake God had made in how many billions of tries. Well, there's two of us now. And I carried that feeling for a long, long time. At the age of 42, I reached a phase of my life where I wanted to die and truly, truly wanted to die. I thought I was having a heart attack, and I thought that would be a good way to check out. Nobody would ever know the pain and the misery and the hurt that I felt, and it would be, oh, poor him, he's so young. Well, I didn't die. I didn't even have a heart attack. But that experience in the hospital forced me to admit to a, a physician there how miserable I was, and it was kind of interesting because as I started to just very briefly tell him how much pain and misery I was in, I can remember him looking down on me and he says, you know, you want to understand why I spend 22 hours a day in the hospital? I wasn't alone. He was hurting as much as I was. He was just using a different source of pain reduction. Right after that incident, and, and I went home after being catheterized and there was nothing wrong, I went home on uh, August 10th, 1987, and I got drunk. August 11th, I got drunk. That was the last drunk I had. On August 12th, I went to see a psychologist because I figured this was my last chance, and I was going to make one last effort to try to lick my life. And I don't remember telling him this, but it's obvious that I did, that I told him I was going to kill myself. And I can remember the words, because it was almost like I was in a trance when this happened. The words I remember him saying to me is, is not today, son. Not today. And they locked me up. That experience of being locked up felt so good. I was safe and I was secure. And for the first time in a long time, there was a serenity about that. I didn't have to pretend anymore. I didn't have to fake it. And when they started asking me about, do you want to look at your drinking? The profanity that came out of my mouth to this day, I'm still ashamed of. I spew you words and let it fly for several minutes. And it felt so good to finally tell another human being how sick I was and how unhappy I was and how sad I was and how much I didn't want to be me. I went into a, uh, a period of time for about three and a half years in my early recovery. I didn't drink, but I struggled with all the issues that we all struggle with. I'd get a little better, I'd get a little worse, get a little better, get a little worse. I was in the hospital about, I think it was four times, in the psychiatric unit because I wanted to die, and they said, no, not today. Through that process, I met Father Joe. And Father Joe was an Episcopalian priest who did uh, service work at the hospital, and he talked on spirituality. And I was impressed with his manner and his sincerity, but he also challenged the group 
to find their own God. And after the first meeting I had with him, I asked him a simple question about a very complex situation. How do I deal with my life? Thinking he would give me an answer and it would be all better. And his, his response to me was, he says, I don't know. But if you ask God on a daily basis, the answer will come. So I started asking God on a daily basis. And my early asking of God was, God, give me the grace to forgive myself. My early asking of God was a prayer of truth and confidence. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. Show me the way. The process of recovery through all that garbage for three and a half years was absolutely the most excruciating, painful experience that I've ever experienced. I don't ever want to go back there. Not ever, ever, ever again. But through this process and through attending Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and you know, it, it's amazing to me how this thing works. Because every therapist I had, and I had to change therapists about three times because of insurance situations, I had to give up one therapist. And the first therapist didn't do anything for me. He just let me wallow in self-pity, talk and talk and talk. But the one thing, I shouldn't say he didn't do anything, the one thing he did do, he told me, he says he could help me with the emotional. But if I wanted to stay sober, go to Alcoholics Anonymous forever. The second therapist I had was a tremendously powerful man. I trusted him, and I started asking all the questions that a young man should be asking his father. But I let it all hang out. All the fears, all the worries, all the concerns, all the insecurities about what it was like to be a man. How should I act? How should I feel? And he helped me. He was gentle and kind and yet very stern. He says, I will not help you if you will not help yourself. I will not waste my time talking to you if you aren't willing to do what I'm asking you to do. And that's one of the things that Father Martin has impressed upon me too. He made the comment that the reason people don't get better in therapy is very simple. First of all, they don't tell the therapist the truth. And the second thing is they don't follow the advice. Well, I did want to get well, and I still want to get well. So I tell the truth, and I take advice, sometimes begrudgingly, but I take advice. The vast majority of advice I have taken and listened to is advice I didn't want to hear. There's a little saying that says, we'd all rather be ruined with praise than helped with criticism. The criticism is what got me here now to where I am today. If I would have let people continue to bathe me in passive, poor boy, oh, you poor man, I would still be sitting down being a poor man. They have taught me how to stand up. The experience of spirituality for me has come in many, many different ways, and some of them very simple. At an AA meeting uh, somewhere, third year of sobriety, we used to meet at a church, and they had a mural on the wall, and they had a road leading up to heaven. And on this road, they had a sign, no U-turns. I interpreted that. I could not turn back. They had another sign, one way. 
There was no other way for me. I interpret that I was on the right course. Stay on that road. Follow that road. Follow your dream. And I would reach my destination. Now, I know my destination is death. But I'm going to enjoy every minute of the journey. Every minute of the journey. At that same meeting, and it was a group, and I, and I think by then I was somewhere 45, 46 years old. It was a 55 and older group, and they used to kid me that I was the baby, and I was. I was the youngest person in that meeting. And I used to go in there and bawl. And there was one specific time that had a, a tremendous impact on me, a spiritual experience. It was uh, one of the days that I had to go to court to finalize a divorce, and I didn't want to go through with, with, this, with this pain of having to to go in front of a judge and talk about all this crap that had happened to me. And, the, and I sat there and bawled, my head on over the table. The tears were just falling on the table. And there were two elderly ladies there, one on each side of me, and each of them put their hand on me. And I, it, it could not have been planned. I don't believe it was planned. But the touch... One here, one here, was almost instantaneous. And they told me, you know, it'll be okay. You just keep coming back to us. And it felt so good. The love of Alcoholics Anonymous was there. And I felt it. And I wanted it. And I still want it today. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. The greatest thing that ever happened to me. But that sense of warmth and caring that I had never truly experienced was there. In that same group, shortly thereafter, they were having an open meeting. And a couple of the people started arguing about what kind of cookies and how many cookies they needed for this meeting. And they argued for a long time, a long time, maybe three, four, five minutes. It seemed like a long time to me. And I'm sitting here thinking about this and I'm thinking, God, God, what am I supposed to learn here? This is just absolutely frustrating to me. What the hell's the matter with these people? What am I supposed to learn here? Tolerance. Just like that. I sat there and that came to me. Tolerance. How do you learn tolerance? By being tolerant. I took that back to my therapist. How do you be tolerant? He gave me some techniques. Put your hands on the table. Put your feet on the floor. Concentrate on breathing slowly and rhythmatically and you will learn tolerance and you will learn patience. And that's what I did. I learned tolerance and patience by going to AA meetings, listening to people argue about cookies. My recovery, and I got into, got remarried, and there were times of beauty and joy in my life and then I would go into these funks, these depressions. And I was in a terrible depression in February 1993. And my sponsor, Father Joe, had sent me a book, <clears throat> Letting God. And on February 23rd, I read these words. Imagine how you might feel if you were the captain of a slave ship. Picture the burden of guilt and shame you would carry 
if you had to transport chain human beings and swallow to a life of degrading slavery. Such a man was John Newton, who was overcome by his part in this despicable traffic. His sin was more than he could bear. He knew he was a wretch in a wretched business. His repentance was total. He turned to God for forgiveness. What he received was beyond his expectation. Like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, he found a waiting, loving God who welcomed him home with a celebration. Sometime later, he wrote these famous words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton became a clergyman and wrote other hymns, preached stirring, stirring sermons, ministered to the wretches, and completed his life as a tribute to God and as a gift to humanity. How like the recovering addict, the person who once was wretched, lost, and blind, who once caused seemingly endless pain, can be saved. Yes, saved. Not only can we find such saving health, we learn, like John Newton, that the grace of God that saved us is truly amazing. The grace that we share, we share with others, and it is amazingly still greater. I read those words, and I immediately went to the phone and called my sponsor, who had moved away. And I thanked him from the bottom of my heart, and I told him how much I loved him and how much I cared about him and how much greatness that has happened to me because of his willingness to share his life with me and to help me. And I want to make a pitch right here. If there's anybody in your life that has ever helped you, take the opportunity to say thank you and show them your gratitude. Eighteen days later, this man died. I had such a sense of sadness and loss and pain when he died that I didn't think I could bear up. But one of the things that gave me a great deal of solace is that I knew in my heart that I could not have told him more about how much I cared and how much I loved him. And the day we buried him, I cried so hard and for so long I didn't think it would quit. And after the service, everybody went down to this reception center. He was buried in a uh, cemetery at a, sem uh, at a seminary, and they had a reception. We were down there, and I was just so distraught I couldn't put it together, and I left. And I walked back up the hill. It was probably a matter of two blocks. And the gravedigger were leaving to get the tractor to cover the grave. And I walked over to this grave, and I looked down in this grave, very simple casket, and I, Joe, Joe, I want to be just like you, Joe. I just want to be like you, Joe. And his booming voice came roaring up at me, and he said, No, you just be the best Dick Pearson you can be. The excitement, the enthusiasm, the joy, and the fear that came into me at that moment was absolutely overwhelming. I trembled. I was so frightened. But the message to him in death was for me to live to take my experience, my strength and hope, and to share it to the very best of my ability, to give it my best effort. 
because that's what he had given me. He didn't shortchange me one iota. He gave me his very best. Father Martin has a real cute way of putting that. He says, you know, in recovery, he says, recovery is like the spread of a, on butter or on bread. He says, margarine covers the bread. He says, but butter tastes better. And I like butter. And so do I. And that's how I plan on living my life. The very best sobriety that's available to me is I'm going to take it. It costs no one anything if I have joy and if I have peace and I have contentment in my heart. And that's what I want, is the joy and the peace and the love and the serenity that it has for doing the very best I can with what I have. I am no longer ashamed of who Dick Pearson is. I'm as good as you, and you're as good as I. And that's a wonderful way to live. There's a cute little saying, you know, that we all think we're unique. We are all unique. We're all as unique as a snowflake, but we're as common as grass. I put that into context today, that my uniquenesses are my uniquenesses, but my commonality with everybody else is much more obvious. I really have to start searching for, to be unique, but I can look out here and say, we're all alike, the vast, vast part of us. In my recovery, I've made it a, an opportunity. I don't even want to call it, say, an effort anymore. It's a joy. I meditate every day. I have a routine. Through the years, my kids have given me a couple books, and I've collected books, and I've had people give me books in the program. Uh, I read 13 books a day, one page out of each of them. Some in the morning, some at night, some at my office. And I was thinking about this. In fact, I was telling Karen we were multiplying it up. Tomorrow I celebrate 14 years of sobriety. Tomorrow we celebrate 10 years of marriage. Karen celebrates 11 years smoke-free tomorrow. And in those years for me, 51,000 thoughts I have been able to put into this noggin by doing my meditations on a daily basis. 51,000 thoughts, or somewhere around 3,000 thoughts 14 times, whatever it is. I have learned a lot. I know much more today than I did August 11th, 1987. And in one of the things that I, that I find very fascinating today is to collect quotations. And I just want to spend just a couple minutes giving you a couple quotations that are significant to me. Actually, I have hundreds of them, but I had to select the ones that I thought were more appropriate. When the solution is simple, God is answering. God never tells us in advance whether the course we are on to follow is the correct one. Where the pure see purity, the pig sees smut. Small is the number of them that see with their own eyes and feel with their own hearts. The deeper we search, the more we find there is to be known, and as long as human life exists, I believe that it will always be so. By painful experience, 
we have learned that rational thinking does not suffice to solve the problems of our social life. The significance of those quotes, I think, really comes down to this. That's Albert Einstein. We think of Albert Einstein as a scientist, but he had some really neat spiritual ideas. There's a little Swedish proverb that says, a joy that is shared is doubled, and a sorrow that is shared is halved. Alcoholics Anonymous has allowed me to share both my sorrows and my joys, and you have doubled my joy, and you have halved my sorrow. And from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for being here today, for allowing me the opportunity of sharing with you. This means a great deal to me. My recovery means everything to me, because without recovery, there isn't much left for me to do. I will close this with a very simple prayer, or not even a prayer, a simple thought. Mahatma Gandhi's thought. Our prayer for others ought never to be, God, give them the light that thou hast given me, but give them all the light and truth that they need for their highest development. And that is my prayer for you today, each and every one of you. May you find what you need for your higher development, because God has blessed me, and I want to share that blessing with you. Thank you. All of you are here for early bird meeting. You've been here before, possibly. You know that we uh, ask for volunteers to come up here and share a little bit of what your thoughts are this morning for the rest of this, about 20 minutes. So we need two people sitting here so we don't have to wait too long of getting up and going. So we need somebody to start. Who wants to start off this morning? Come on up. Morning. My name is Dick, and I'm an alcoholic addict. <clears throat> I think one of the things that has amazed me in this spiritual progress, this growth in Alcoholics Anonymous, is how often I hear a story and it sounds so much like me. I can almost identify with what Dick was talking about in his early childhood because I can feel and know that the same things happened to me. I also realize that spirituality is a slow, insidious, steady, progress. It didn't happen to me overnight. It was something that as I stayed in Alcoholics Anonymous and I followed the suggestions that people gave me, paid attention to my sponsor, and was attentive to my sponsor, that I began to feel better. I began to enjoy life. And I agree with Dick, absolutely. Enjoying life is what it's about. Not every moment I go through is happy. But the journey has been fantastic. This is my home. This is where I was raised, Oklahoma City. I've been here for many, many, many years. I'm here at this time with a sense of joy and immeasurable sadness because in June my father died. And I had been estranged from my father for many years. Five years ago we reunited. 
And I couldn't have done that if it hadn't been for this program of AA. And there's no way. I was full of anger and hatred and unhappiness and sorrow, self-loathing. But the program has taught me how to love myself and therefore be able to love other people. Five years ago, I was able to reinitiate a relationship with my father. And for five years, he turned out to be my very best friend next to my wife. So his loss, his death, suddenly was a, a great shock to me. But I was able to find a lot of solace and a lot of acceptance in this program. My sponsor told me one thing. He said, <clears throat> you have a lot of garbage. And he said, you must never go to a meeting that you don't share. And I follow that today. Because he said something I thought was extremely profound and basically is the philosophy I follow today. If I leave a meeting without sharing, I walk out with the same problems I came in with. If I share in a meeting, I have lessened those problems immeasurably. Thank you. Hi, folks. My name's Hugh. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, it's a great pleasure for me to come to IDAA and to experience the warmth and the friendship and the genuine caring that, that I find when I come uh, over here. In my earlier life, each man, of course, only starts off his life with the cards he's dealt. And in my younger life, my characteristics were that I was an intelligent man who was determined, and I set about living my life uh, in that manner. Um, I, I, I didn't find people easy to deal with other than as a professional man. And uh, I found, of course, that taking a drink made things different. And as long as I could take a drink and nothing happened, that was fine. I always, I've been sober now for some years. I remember the moment that my heart broke. It happened up on the western coast of Scotland in a very beautiful place called Kyle Skew. And the hills over there are covered with heather and they're quite different to the hills that we see here. And it was an autumn day in October and the sunlight of early winter was lancing down over the, the hillside and glancing across the actual waters of Kelskew and the wind was whipping the waves up and there was a sort of white froth on the top of the waves and it was a scene of immense beauty and my heart, I, I found myself crying on the side of that hill you see, they, I no longer had a wife to blame I no longer had a job that was giving me great pressure and uh, I no longer had a house to live in either and when I finally uh, got sober through Alcoholics Anonymous the main difficulty that I had was to try and understand that I couldn't live my life in the manner that I had before just not taking alcohol um, I found I could deal with women very easily but I didn't deal easily with men and I think basically that may have come from uh, the fact that my own father was an alcoholic and he wasn't particularly kind to his eight children I was frightened of him. However, down the years, you know, there's been no bloke who's come along that I've tried to be friendly with and bitten me. So I'm gradually getting a little bit bolder as I get older. It's been a lovely life uh, being sober. 
it has been a life of self-discovery. Um, I try not to be as arrogant as I have been in the past. I try and be a wee bit more tolerant. I've seen my three children grow up to adulthood. I've buried my mother and father sober as the head of my family. I'm a lucky guy to be standing here talking to you folk. I've still got a sense of fun. I was just telling, I'll just finish with this short story. Um, I, I've been very lucky. I've been married to two women who were wonderful women. They were good women. Even the first wife who sent me out of the house on the day that our marriage ended, uh, she said to me, get out of here, you useless alcoholic imbecile. And I thought that was a bit hard. I can understand why she did it. But anyway, um, during my medical training, towards the end of it, uh, my binge drinking was getting worse. And on one occasion, I was gone for the whole week. I just couldn't make it back to the classes. And when I staggered in on Monday morning to start again, uh, feeling pretty rough and looking pretty rough, I might add, uh, uh, my day became immediately much worse because one of my fellow students said, you have to go up and see the child health professor. And I knew that I didn't look too good. And uh, normally I could think up something, you know, to, to cover any uh, situation. But on this particular morning, I was so hungover I couldn't. And as I trailed up the stairs to his office, I still hadn't thought of anything by the time I arrived at his door. And I knocked on his door and he asked me to come in and sit down. And I still hadn't thought of anything. And I was getting considerably worried now. And there was a long silence ensued. And he finally said, Hugh, he said, you have been missing for a week. Would you like to offer any explanation? And, you know, and, and almost like a, I swear this is true, almost like a bolt of lightning, the answer to my dilemma struck me. And I looked at him and tears welled up in my eyes. And I said to him, I'll have to tell somebody what's been going on. I can't keep this to myself any longer. It's my wife. She's an alcoholic. You know? <laughs> And then I proceeded, uh, you know, I, I, I could see with the corner of my eye that this had produced the desired effect. This had knocked him right off the course, you see. And uh, I said a few things that uh, I was doing to her, you know, like hiding bottles and disappearing and not coming in at night and stuff like that. And, uh, um, uh, you know, that, that I tried to cover up as long as I could, but, you know, it was hopeless. It was hopeless. And, you know, with three young children as well, you know, it was just dreadful. He put his arm around my shoulder and marched me to the door, you know, along the lines of my door is ever open. You see, but the, 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 three years later, I was on that hillside. You know, you run out of excuses, and uh, eventually you have, to, you have to bend the knee. That's what I found. I had to bend the knee. I'm so glad today that I bent the knee, and thank you very much for listening to me. Good morning. I'm Larry, alcoholic. <clears throat> and the man I was, uh, over 40 years, drank a river of uh, booze. And the man I was will drink again. And this is about change. And I... Since the last drink that I took for the past 11 years, it's been about maintaining that change. And I'm one of those and one of these who believes in a daily reprieve. So I appreciated your talk this morning. You are really on a daily reprieve basis with 14 books a day. <laughs> I, uh, my uh, spiritual odyssey is not too uniquely linked to, to my drunkalog. I think, well, I saw the light and the light was blue, simply. <laughs> <laughs>
And I'm not going to talk about my drunk log any more than that. But if you want to hear about it, and you want to swap tales, benchmarks of, uh, of our drunk log sometimes are in DUIs. I once managed to get two in one 24-hour period. So <laughs> I'll leave it at that. But uh, I first started coming around these rooms in Street AA in 1977, and I took my last drink in 91. And then I came here at first Camelback in 93. So my tale in and out these doors is uh, not unique. I used AA. When people got on my back, the partners, the hospital, the small community, I ran in here. Sometimes I think I came because I, I really, really wanted to do something. Sometimes I came because I wanted to get them off my back. And I stayed until I started to clean up and look better and people started to tell me, you're looking good and things are better. And then I would just ease back out into the bush until it beat me up again. Now, that's not a unique story. And this went on for years and years and years. And I'd come through those doors and, and I'd hear a tale like that and I'd say, gee, if I, if I ever get that bad. <laughs> and then at one point, toward the end of my drinking, when it was every day and I was, had lost a family with four lovely children and beautiful wife of 37 years and the big house and the partners were saying, well, maybe you better consider alternatives. And I was living alone and, and I would come in these meetings and, and I would hear a tale like I've heard, just heard and I would say, well, I spilt more than that. I just completely jumped over the spirituality of this thing. I just, you know, just didn't work for me. And I was one of those constitutionally incapable. What a great little area to jump into in, that, in, in how it works. You know, one of those constitutionally incapable. It just won't work for me. Well, I got uh, an offer I couldn't refuse from the state medical board. And I went to uh, Macon, Georgia for my third treatment and got spun dry and shipped off to Talbot. Best thing that ever happened to me. I wouldn't want to do it again unless I absolutely had to. <laughs> but it's the best thing that happened to me. And uh, I began to get my spirituality in, in what I call little moments of clarity, just little bleeps, you know. I think the first one was that very first night. Any of you ever been to Talbot? There's a big room like this, and a hundred guys sit around on chairs and on mats on the floor, and sometimes... Uh, the gurus are there, and sometimes they're not. And so happened the night I came in, Doug was there, and, and the first thing they do is they, they hit the new guy, just like we do, and say, how did you get here? And uh, I could always talk the talk. I'd been around it for 20 years. So I spun this little tale of woe, and, and uh, I volunteered. And uh, he looked me right in the eye, and everybody in the room just literally disappeared. You know, they just, I couldn't see them anymore. He looked me right in the eye, and he said, Larry, we took the bottle away from you. And that was true. And he said, this left a hole. <clears throat> I'm sorry. This left a hole in the middle of your chest where your guts and heart used to be. And the wind is blowing through. And he says, but, you know, we're healers. And he says, we know what it takes to heal. you got to clean it first. And for six months... We cleaned the wound. 
and I still am, but it's healing slowly, very slowly, but it's healing. That's the odyssey. Gosh, four months through it into that, I went to a, a meeting one Friday night in, in, uh, in Atlanta, and <clears throat> there was a little old lady there, and it was a four-step meeting, and we, we, the reason we were there, we were going to go from there to the movies that were nearby, six or seven of us, and she was up telling this story about her drunkenness and how when she drank too much Harvey's Bristol cream, uh, she chewed out her neighbor because his dog peed on her roses. And I said, finally, God, I'm just like that. You know, I wrecked cars, I chased women, I, I insulted partners, I did bad things, I got, you know, on, in the paper and I ran off into treatment to hide and all that kind of stuff. But I was just like her, and I'm just like you, and you're just like me, and you are my heroes. Whether you want to be or not, you're drafted. I come to this meeting because there aren't any pictures in the big book. Think about that. There are no pictures in the big book. You are my living images of sobriety. And I'm yours. And we're on this odyssey together. I love you. I'm Gene. I'm alcoholic. Hi, everybody. It's a tremendous privilege for me to be here at the meeting. Uh, for me, it's, a, it's an annual renewal. It means another year's gone by. I've lived another year, and I'm sober another year, and I'm back at IDAA. This is my 12th meeting. Um, I was thinking a little bit before about our first meeting in Boca in Florida. And I was with my wife who was trying to attend the Al-Anon meetings and she had been undergoing chemotherapy. She didn't have a hair in her head. And she missed most of the meetings and I would go back to the room to visit her and bring her some food and see how she was. And we had a wonderful meeting. It was just where we needed to be that year. And we made a commitment to come back for the following year. Not, we tried not to project, but we made a plan. And we've been back every year since. And I'm looking forward to next year also. Uh, a few, three years ago at the meeting, I was sharing that I was just recovering from surgery for prostate cancer. And the joke now is what other cancer is going to crop up for us for the next meeting? But it almost doesn't matter because I have the faith that uh, if we're well enough to travel, we'll be here at the meeting. The other day at the early bird meeting, people were talking about prostate cancer also. It seems to be such a popular thing now. And I was thinking about his little story, Hal's story, about the woman coming in and hearing everybody talk about kill self, kill self. And she asked what the topic was. The topic was suicide. I thought if somebody comes into the early bird meeting, somebody might think the topic is prostate cancer, you know. But uh, we're here, and I'm alive and healthy and sober. One of the other things that I love about the meeting is that it provides a chance to visit an area of the country that I might not ever come to. And uh, it's my first trip to Oklahoma City, and I had the chance to visit the bombing memorial at the Mural Building. And I was just unprepared for how I felt about that. I walked around the area outside, and it's had such an impact on me. And seeing 
all the beautiful exhibits at the meeting, it was just so powerful to see the effects of violence and how they have um, made it possible to sit there and recreate that violent event and see the aftermath of it. I was just so moved by that. And I had a feeling that I had been there before, that kind of deja vu kind of feeling. And I was trying to think why, why I felt so proud, profoundly that I had felt those feelings before. And I, my first thought was that perhaps I had visited the uh, Dallas um, Memorial or the Texas School Book Depository from where the shots were fired that killed President Kennedy. And I thought, well, maybe it had to do with that. There was a lot of similarities to that. But I saw on the wall there, they had written, all ye who have, who leave here, know the effect of violence. And that little phrase just sort of made me think about our phrase, our stories tell in a general way, what we were like, what happened, and how we are now. The violence of alcoholism doesn't occur in one minute, like it did at the Mura building. It was just a lifetime of violence that we've all felt. And I think that's what I was thinking about. And it's the, the importance of telling our stories about it, to memorialize it, and to get the spiritual impact of it. It's why we're all here. It's a very violent place to be in active alcoholism. And many people die and families are destroyed and people are widowed and orphaned. But it's not a one-minute bomb. It's a lifetime of violence. And I was so glad I had the opportunity to see that. And to be here in Oklahoma City, it sort of tied it all together for me. I'm thankful I don't have to live in that violent environment anymore. All of the friends that we have, that we have fun with, that we go to meetings with, that we associate with, are all recovering people. And it is so pleasant, just the antithesis of that loud roar, that big bomb. I could lay that all down. Thank you all for being here every year for me. Good morning, everybody. My name is Tony Clinton. I'm an alcoholic. I had a very dear friend who, when he was quite young, became deaf. It was probably the result of a, another disease that damaged his hearing. And he was deaf for many years. And then finally, when he became a young adult, at that time, there was a ear surgeon who developed a uh, stapes immobilization type of surgery and he was able to get his hearing back in one ear but during those years that he was deaf he had to learn to read people in a different way than those of us who had uh, were able to hear and he developed his own type of uh, wisdom and when I got to know him uh, in 1953, he used to say, don't tell me, show me. 
And that's what he had learned in his uh, years of deafness, that he wanted to be shown what the person was trying to say. And that made a big impression on me, because I was a glib talker. I promised many things. I uh, created uh, fancy pictures with words. Uh, and I used to give a lot of thought to that, uh, don't tell me, show me. When I came into AA, I used to hear words like uh, love and sharing and gratitude. And I used to think, how does one show this? How does one uh, manifest uh, love and gratitude? And it was in these rooms that I learned that the expression of love and the expression of gratitude is the willingness of self-disclosure. That was a show me, that was an action that represented, as far as I was concerned, love and gratitude. I've been coming to AA meetings and IDAA for 24 years, and I still come because has been an opportunity for me to express a love and a gratitude by self-disclosure. It has always been a place where I felt enriched and healed by your self-disclosure. And I still come because there's more self-disclosure. I found each year I have a little more to disclose. And I find your willingness to disclose yourself has helped me. Uh, like Dick, I save little quotations and aphorisms and inspirational words. And I remember reading this by uh, a famous woman, Longworth, Alice Longworth Roosevelt. And she said the secret to happiness in her life was empty what's full, fill what's empty and scratch where it itches. <laughs> and I thought that was very practical. I keep coming to these meetings. I can't tell you how privileged I am that you people are willing to disclose yourself. I'm amazed at how much more I have to d disclose because it seems between meetings in August, I also accumulate a lot of stuff that has to be relieved. I'm still privileged and blessed that I have this experience and I can share it with you. Thank you.